Welcome to another Charity Chat podcast. I'm Osman Mughal and I'm delighted to be speaking with Ashby Jenkins today. Ashby is the founder of Ashby Jenkins Recruitment and having worked in a non-for-profit recruitment world for a number of years, she has set up her own agency two years ago. In today's conversation, we discuss her motivation behind working within the non-for-profit recruitment sector, how COVID-19 has impacted the sector from her conversations with organisations, hiring managers and individuals alike, and the impact of the government's job retention scheme, also known as furlough. We also explore the numerous opportunities that the COVID-19 crisis has led to. We touch on the webinar series that AJR have run over the past few months to help support the sector in a number of key areas. And we discuss the importance of equality, diversity and inclusion within our sector. How the last few months have brought into sharp focus this critical topic. And what steps recruiters and organisations need to take to develop a more equitable, diverse and inclusive approach within their respective organisations. So let's get into the podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Ashby Jenkins of Ashby Jenkins Recruitment. Welcome to the podcast, Ashby. Uh, Thank you for having me. I'm very excited and nervous at the same time. (laughs) It's a pleasure to have you on, Ashby. So thank you so much for taking the time out out of your busy schedule to be with us today. And before we get into the podcast itself and discuss how you and your team have been supporting the sector through this very challenging time, which I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit later, I wanted to start by understanding how you came into the recruitment world in the first place and what attracted you to this area, particularly within the non-for-profit sector. And what is your vision at Ashby Jenkins Recruitment? I mean, I kind of stumbled, I think, into the charity sector and into recruitment, which is is probably something that most people in both areas say similarly. Um, so I had initially started working in kind of promotional marketing for Capital FM, um, which was really exciting, although I always caveat that and say it was on the South Coast and not on the London branch, which would have been more celebrity focused. Um, and then I was really um i worked really closely with a hospice down on the south coast where i'm from um and through learning a bit more about their work decided that i really wanted to move into fundraising so i identified kind of some some key skills that were kind of sales and relationship building and thought okay new business is going to be great for me and they had an opportunity um and I went to went to that opportunity and it was for a really junior role. I think it was initially meant to be a one stage interview process because I'd not come from a fundraising background. It ended up being a three stage interview process with um, with the third stage basically consisting of me begging them to give me this job and um, and give me a chance to, to be a fundraiser, which they did, which is great. Um, so obviously I'm compelling at that. Um, and I worked there for about a year and then decided to move to London, got an um, amazing opportunity to work in Great Ormond Street Hospital's children's charity, new business team, um, and and joined there. 
that was obviously a much larger organization so I started out in a small hospice and then went somewhere huge and actually at that time kind of looking back I don't think I developed the influencing skills to be able to negotiate such a large such a large organization so I um I knew I was passionate about fundraising I knew I loved building relationships with people and I knew I would liked hitting financial targets um so my friend at the time said well, have you thought about recruitment in the charity sector um and that is where i started my journey so i met with a couple of different agencies the one i joined at the time i joined as a trainee and they coached me up in all of the ways of, of being good being good in recruitment um and i left i left there after about four and a half years um it was a really great learning opportunity and then um established my own agency is supporting fundraisers to find new roles which is where I am now which is Ashby Jenkins recruitment um, I always make the joke at this point that is very narcissistic to name an agency after after you um, but it was a suggestion from one of my clients I promise they were like oh I'm sure you should you should just call it after yourself it wasn't just me being in love with myself um, and then since then we're now um, coming up to two years old in December and I've got a team of three really great people that work with me uh, two of whom are ex-fundraisers and one of whom is just a lovely lady who is great at putting candidates at ease and and helping people with their job search um, and I think in terms of uh, kind of the, the, the not-for-profit sector, I would never see myself recruiting outside of it. I genuinely love fundraisers across all different income streams. We all know their different personality profiles, but um, I love helping people. I love coaching and supporting and all of the soft stuff that comes with recruitment is something that I am really passionate about, particularly over the last four months where it's been, or five months now, where it's been a really scary time for so many people, you know, with, with a lot of changes happening. So I think this is where my vision for AJR, I guess, is, is to be here to genuinely support the sector and genuinely support the people we work with. And I have been really lucky in attracting a team of people who care about that as much as I do. And I think because of their fundraising backgrounds and my own fundraising background, we have a real empathy for being on the other side of the fence. So we don't do those kind of tactics that perhaps your traditional agencies might use. We, we are very personal with our approach. And the thing I want us to continue doing during this time and once we're out of that is supporting the sector in any way we can, whether that's with knowledge sharing or coaching or general career advice. Um, a thing that I always say in terms of fundraising and recruitment is not that different it is all relationship building and although fundraising helps raise money to obviously support beneficiaries from my perspective as a recruiter the thing that I love is my job changes people's lives you know in the best of times that's pay rises and promotions with which they buy houses and they get married and at the worst of times like we're in at the moment a 10 minute call with us I hope makes people feel better I hope we make people feel more secure and I hope that we make them feel calmer about the market um, definitely in the first month of, of lockdown we called every single person looking on our database and just tried to reassure them that things were going to be okay um, advice on supporting statements so I think all of that is the vision for AJR is that we keep we keep helping people in in any way that we can um, and being experts in this in this sector in this area
Thank you, Ashby. That's, that's really great to hear. And I completely echo your point about falling into fundraising. As a fundraiser myself, it's something that we, the majority of us at least, fall into. But we all share the same vision and passion, which is to help those less fortunate than us and empower those people and our beneficiaries at the end of the day. You mentioned a little bit in your first answer, but do you feel that your background starting out in fundraising and understanding the different income streams of fundraising, do you think that has allowed you to become a more effective recruiter, understanding the skills, the relationships that you need to build to be an efficient fundraiser? Yes, absolutely. I think it's it's a real mixed bag. You know, I think recruitment is is heartbreaking as well as as is you know new business or or cold development of any kind of relationship and income stream. But I think the fact that I worked in a small organisation and then in a large one, which was really professional, I saw how different fundraisers what their jobs look like, what it took to be a really great fundraiser, you know, where the challenges were. And I think because of that, I could be more empathetic. And when I speak to people who are hiring on the phone, they know I understand their requirements, you know, so I know what a small trust mailing is, or I know what a, um, a senior volunteer might be rather than, um, than someone who doesn't have that insight. But I think I think you can be a good recruiter without a background in what you recruit for. But you have to be very curious and you have to want to keep learning and really embed yourself within the sector, whether that's becoming a trustee or, or whatever. I think that's the research is really key. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. And you must be incredibly proud to have your own recruitment company since um, you mentioned you started out as a trainee, you built yourself up. But of course, it's not just about the fundraising side. There's also a business angle to it as well. And I just wondered, how did you deal with that, you know, when you started your own business, because it is a business at the end of the day, although you are working with people that are passionate about um, the sector and the causes that they work for. I just wondered, how did you get your mind around the business side of things? Yeah, I think um, the the way that recruitment works and I guess the way is fund that fundraising works as well is you know what you're responsible for generating so say you're a fundraiser you've got 150k target you know what you're responsible you know you then normally have budgetary management as well and I think recruitment was the same so you know although it's the day-to-day of finding building client relationships finding the right match for organizations actually your brand is your brand and that's one thing i would say for for fundraisers as well don't don't think of yourself just as a fundraiser to generate money you also have to be self-aware of what your brand looks like to the market so i think um my marketing background really helped in terms of that side of the business um i've learned the financial skills you know that's uh, that's not my favorite area you know i like the relationship building less so of the spreadsheets but um but it all i think if you've got a vision and if you really believe in what you're doing you know and you really believe that you're going to make a change and whether that's for me for for, you know helping people find a better role and and improve their lives and for fundraisers to help their beneficiaries I think you can as long as you are always curious to learn and keen to learn that is always for me the key attributes of any successful person in in any venture of their life whether that's setting your own business running your own fundraising team or or being a, a fundraiser. Yeah, great advice there, Ashby. Thank you. And we've touched on the impact of the last few months, COVID-19, and how that has impacted every section of society. But as we know, it's impacted the charity sector as well. From the conversations that you've had with organisations throughout this time, 
including hiring managers, but also clients that you work with. What have you heard has been the impact of COVID-19, particularly touching on the government's job retention scheme, also known as furlough? And also, what have been the key challenges throughout that that time period with the organisations that you're working for? So, for example, if they were onboarding new colleagues um, online as opposed to -to face-to-face, or particular income streams that had reduction in income. So we're looking at community and events in particular. Yeah, I think, you know, the tone of definitely the first month from kind of March 19th, which is when I think we went into lockdown through to um, April 19th was just fear and panic, you know, everyone was terrified and you know we can look back on it now perhaps with slightly more fondness but you know that was an incredibly an awful time particularly where fundraisers saw or fundraising leaders saw income um quickly drop you know that we all suddenly realized actually loads of the events aren't going to take place and you know as a business owner you also then start thinking well if actually income's not coming in how do i retain my team and how do i keep people together and um that I think has been probably a weakness in the sector in terms of that real, I guess, support and care for, for staff. It's something that's, that shocks me. And I understand it because a lot of decisions had to be made, made really quickly, but I think there were a lot of knee jerk reactions initially. And particularly in regards to the furlough scheme, as we're starting to come out of that now, generally the trend that we've seen across the sector is those that didn't furlough staff are in a better financial position than those that did. Because I think you have to, you know, and I understand I'm in a slightly removed position, but you have to look at it and say, your fundraisers are your salespeople. And what you don't do at a time when you're worried about losing money is put all of your salespeople out of action you know you need them to have conversations and I think community and events as you've mentioned has been specifically hit really badly actually though if you'd had more of those people in the office developing new products brainstorming a lot of charities would have bounced back a bit quicker and I think that's the difference that we're seeing between you know and I I'll, I'll mention Refuge. They've they've done spectacularly well. I know that obviously there's a pressing need for their cause, but they kept all their team and they launched a product product super super quickly, and then they hit their fund and annual fundraising target in like three months. So there, that's a, a general trend in terms of in terms of that. Um, I think we'll we'll see the long term impact of how organisations have been led in terms of. Um, candidates might be scared to leave a role at the moment because it is a it's an, a tempestuous time however six months down the line or a year down the line when the market's there if you haven't treated your people right through this time and you haven't put them at the center of everything you do they will leave they will leave you and your reputation your employer brand will be damaged so i think it's it's a short-term a short-term view One point that really struck me throughout the COVID-19 crisis is the importance of diversifying income streams Mm. and organisations which were reliant on one or two particular income streams, particularly as we mentioned, if this is more community and events based, I think those organisations have perhaps suffered the most. And I think COVID-19 has shown the importance to develop different income streams so that if one suffers a knock, the others are there. So I'm just wondering, from your perspective, is that something that you've seen as well? 
Yeah, I definitely, I think the difficulty is, and we're all guilty of falling into, we've done it this way forever and it's always worked. So let's just continue doing it this way forever. And actually we're now living in a time where you have to let go of everything you've known in the past, you know, and I think that's what was so terrifying initially. Um, it's definitely shown, uh, you know, that, that we need more diversity in our fundraising income streams. And I know we'll probably touch on that diversity later as well. But I think um, one thing it's shown for, for me, and it's something that I've been an advocate of for, for many years, is the lack of perhaps cognitive diversity across the fundraising teams in the sector. So um, we did a webinar last week actually on insight profiles and, and the types of personalities that tend to sit in leadership roles. Um, and that's that's great but actually you need to make sure you've got a mixed team in terms of personality types and backgrounds and things like that because potentially if we'd had more leadership or more diverse fundraising teams in terms of background we might have launched into things like virtual streaming and gaming years ago because um, the US fundraising market in gaming is huge they raise millions and millions each year and it's actually something that the UK market has only really just started tapping into and a lot of that has been reactive because of the situation and and I think where you we we will continue to have risk if we don't diversify our portfolio your organizations will continue to have risk unless they diversify their portfolio so yeah the the charities at the moment that have come through have really strong fundraising trusts and foundations funding that's that's fine but actually i think we need to look at well what's the impact going to be two three five years down the line on those foundations and those trusts that have given away more of their money than they would have normally is that going to lead to tighter criteria i think the the main thing is those organizations that take things for granted or expect things to continue being the way that they always have been are the ones that will lose in this situation and it will be the the more creative and the more diverse cognitively income wise and um background wise that will benefit more more strongly in the long term absolutely i couldn't agree more ashby and when we talk about covid19 of course it's been a challenging time for everybody but i also want to touch on some of the positives and opportunities that have come out of covid19 because i think that's important to understand within the fundraising environment that we are in and the way that we need to adapt ourselves as a sector to ensure that we are ready for the future. So I wanted you to share, particularly as you have conversations with many organisations across the sector and individuals that work in fundraising, what have been the opportunities that have come out of this crisis? Yeah. So then there are there are loads of great things as well. You know, I think it was it can be very doom and gloom, but there are there are genuinely some great opportunities. So on the flip side from what I just mentioned around organizations that perhaps haven't managed their teams particularly well or supported them, there are some organizations that have done some outstanding work with their staff, like truly outstanding. And um those organizations will see that they in the future will retain their teams a lot longer than before. So, you know, the average life span of a fundraiser within an organization for want of a better word tends to be your 12 to 18 months um, I think those organizations that have looked after their team will say that increase to two two and a half years just because people will feel really appreciated and supported by their organization I also think resilience so um, fundraisers need to be very resilient anyway but I think with the the tumultuous time that we've had recently any kind of trauma 
once you've gone through it and you've been exposed to it you build a level of resilience towards that in happening in the future and I think actually we've had a lot of people that have grown up and started work you know and I'd say myself amongst them grow started the word work post last recession who've not known times like these and actually now we have full-on exposure to that so there'll be a lot more resilience within teams which is great and really important for fundraising um also talent pool just in terms of out, loads of people get to that point where they're like okay right I'm in London I've ha had a baby or I've got a dog it's time to move out now and I think um, what happens a lot for those people that choose that career path previously is they would have to put their career on hold because so many charities are London centric whereas moving forward they won't have to worry about that because we might only need to be in the office one or two days a week so it's going to be better for people's career who want to move out of London it's going to be better for organizations who are open to new talent pools outside of London too um, and I think generally, like we've seen much more creativity in the sector as well. So there have been like some really great stuff done with virtual streaming and gaming, as I mentioned, um, but also, you know, like big, big digital fundraising challenges perhaps this isn't COVID related but there's also been big step forwards in terms of recognizing why diversity and organizations are so important so I think there are a lot of great things to come out of this and also it will give a lot of people an opportunity to diversify their fundraising experience into new income streams which can only strengthen you in the long run of your career. Some great points there Ashby particularly you mentioned about digital innovation I think mm. we've seen a lot of organisations who thought they were behind the curve on the digital front actually coming forward and putting together very impressive webinars with major donors, for example, yeah. and that has led to an increase in their income. I spoke yeah. to Paul Gillespie, who is a consultant within the philanthropic space only a couple of weeks ago, and he mentioned that some digital webinars that organisations have held in recent months have almost doubled some organisations' income, which is phenomenal, something that we wouldn't think we would be doing only a couple of months ago, particularly with major donors, because we see that more as a face-to-face -face form of fundraising as opposed to um, over digital means. And it's a really good point um, that you made around talent pools, the fact that you don't have to be London-based to work for a London um, organisation or the head office in London, which I think opens up opportunities for organisations and for individuals working within fundraising. And I also think from my, from my perspective, there has been a lot more open conversation around mental health and emotional well-being mm. in the sector. People are talking more openly about the issue. And I know that issue has been spoken about a lot in the last couple of years within the sector particularly. But I feel COVID-19 was a leveller where everybody was on the same page and had to adapt to the same environment and situation. So making sure that those conversations don't just stop now because yeah. the immediate crisis has, has, has gone away, but rather continuing those conversations and looking how that impacts on certain sections of your workforce. So we know that BAME people within the sector are more likely to contract COVID-19. So how, how do organisations react to that? Something that you've mentioned is that you're doing this wonderful webinar series, yeah. which I think has been going on for a few months now. And I've had to listen to a few of your webinars that you put on. I just wanted to understand how these webinars came about. Were they always going to come about or did they come about because of COVID-19? And what were some of your favourite webinars? 
Yeah, so they weren't ever something that we were planning on doing. I there's a debate, there's a hot hotly contested debate in my team as to which one of us came up with this idea. Uh, because I'm here now, I'll just say it was definitely me and none of the others. Um, no, we we did we part of our plan as a, a, a company was always to do kind of in person events maybe twice a year to try and add value to the sector, and then. Um, when this happened, just our conversations with people and how people were feeling just made us think like we have a really good platform. Like when this the first week that this happened, I just said to my team, like people are going to look to us now to add reassurance and to get to give support. And that's what we need to do. And obviously we're doing that on a one to one basis. But I just thought, is there a way that we can deliver this to a larger audience, which is how the webinar series was um was born effectively um, and we've been really lucky to have some amazing people we've had some really great feedback and I think it's done exactly what I hoped it had to do in terms of people would email me afterwards and be like I'm feeling a lot more positive like this stuff has been happening in my organization but I feel more inspired to go ahead and deal with it thanks you know all of this stuff so it's been it's had the effect that we've wanted it to and I think the need for it will probably decrease slightly over the next couple of months so we'll look at what we do around that because obviously we want to make sure we're adding value and not just holding things for the sake of it but um but they've been on some really great topics i think in terms of my favorites are really hard i really like do i've done a few with Catherine miles and she is great she's very she's um she's a strong character i think she's wonderful very direct communicator excellent leader i think she really backs people you know if you show that you're you're talented and and loyal and she's she's great at delivering optimism great at delivering hope and i know she's helped a lot of organizations um so she's anyone that i've done with her has been amazing the um Building inclusive cultures one is probably was probably the most stressful and rewarding and emotional at the same time because I think and I know we will come well, we will come on to that in a bit more detail but I just I think it's a topic that really resonates with me I, I, and you know and I'm not saying that it's the same but when I was obviously I mentioned a bit about how I moved into fundraising but I, I never went to university I didn't get a, a higher education um and I I had to beg to get my first fundraising job because I was different from having you know fundraising internships and stuff like that and so I I I wanted to make sure we were covering as many angles as possible in terms of like groups that maybe are minorities within our teams you know and obviously the the bigger emphasis emphasis on um racial diversity but it's a topic I'm really passionate about I work with candidates from a BAME background and I think learning more about their experiences over the time and you know placing people in organizations where perhaps they were the only person of color has really come to a forefront from me and the impact so it was it was like um and also it's a very sensitive subject so I spoke to a few people to ask if they wanted to speak and a lot of people were quite shy about it and worried about the impact that I had on the career. And that made me more upset, more angry, because then you're like, well, that shouldn't, that shouldn't even be a concern in terms of like, we shouldn't have created environments where people would be worried about that. And so it was a labor, a labor of love. And I was delighted to be joined by Mayrim and Kevin, um, who were both really great. And it's such a useful chat as well. So we shared all of that round. So those have been my favorite. I think the diverse, the building inclusive cultures was the one that I learned a lot of because, from because you just, 
you living in or hearing more about people's experiences was useful to drive forward to right what can we do how can we really support the sector and how can we support the people in it and I think that's been helpful on a more technical level the live streaming one was incredibly useful as well because I do not know that much <laughs> about live streaming and I'm not very technical so talking to Tom Downey from Tiltify was great because he is like a live wire of energy basically so um so it uh, taught me a lot from that and then I could you know with some some of our clients when they were asking for input it was something I was suggesting that they look at so um that's definitely been useful all of the recordings go onto our YouTube channel. Please do subscribe. Um, it sounds so 2000 to say that, doesn't it? But but yeah, so they're all on there. And then any upcoming webinars we've got um, on our blog section of our website, there is a post about upcoming webinars and we keep that updated so you can get any future future topics. And if anyone has any good suggestions for what they'd like us to cover or who they'd like us to have speak, please do get in touch with me. Um, because on LinkedIn, I'm sure I'm connected with most of you. Uh, so yeah, and I can, I can always take into consideration new ones. Brilliant, thank you Ashby. I wanted now to delve into the topic that we've referenced earlier in the podcast, and I think it's an, an area which you're very passionate about, as, I, as am I, and that's equality, diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. In the last couple of months, I think it's coming to sharp focus because of COVID-19, and the inequities in society that that has shown, but also because of the Black Lives Matter movement. And if we think of the opportunities that have come out in the last few months, I think this is one of the opportunities that the sector needs to grab hold of and move forward very quickly. In the last couple of weeks, we've had the first BAME conference ever, which was held online. And I thought it was one of the best conferences I've ever attended. The energy, the passion was I've never seen that at another conference before. But relating more back to recruitment and your role in the sector, I understand that at AJR you have your own EDI policy, which I found very refreshing. I was really pleased to see that on your website. So well done for that. I just wondered from your perspective, how do you work with organisations to ensure that they're more equal, diverse and inclusive? And also what I'm interested to learn is in your very honest conversations with organisations, what types of challenges do they encounter? For example, if an organisation is based in a part of the country where there's not a lot of racial diversity, perhaps, it's a lot harder to recruit from a more diverse pool of candidates. So I just wondered from your perspective, what conversations are you having? Mm -hmm. Okay, so... um... Firstly, in terms of like what we we're doing as recruiters and what I think the recruitment industry in general supporting the charity sector should do, we have to push ourselves outside of our comfort zone and make commitments. So one thing that I think has been frustrating for me and I'm sure for many other people is the number of virtue signalers that have been getting involved in this conversation over the last kind of four months but not actually making any changes. So those are those people that are like, oh yes, I care so much about this topic and then do nothing about that follow up with it. For us, it it was a conversation that I th- was prompted by 
one of the clients that I placed within within an organization and realization that it wasn't as diverse as either their beneficiary pool, the area that they worked in, in terms of location office wise, um, or as compared to the commercial sectors organizations that she had worked within. And I think it was kind of inspiring to, to listen to her. And then we went about thinking, what can I do? And I was writing a blog and I thought it felt toothless and really um, like vacuous. And I think, how can we actually make an impact? So the most obvious tangible step that we took was to anonymize all CVs. And that is whether we're up against other agencies for roles, because I know some agencies have a policy where they will anonymize CVs, but only if they're the only agency doing that recruitment for that role whereas we do it across all of things um i actively say to clients when i'm recruiting this is our policy will that put our candidates at any kind of disadvantage and i do that because i know they're going to say no of course it won't but also because it raises awareness that actually they can ask their other agencies to do that process too so we anonymize all of our cvs we um have committed to an ongoing series of EDI events so the gender diversity one that you mentioned the one on building inclusive cultures we're also looking at getting someone in from the commercial sector to speak about how from a really large company to speak about how they introduce policy change and things like that and then some of the lead thought leaders within our own sector um, in terms of our process from there we reached out to HR teams we basically said this is what we want to do. How can we better support you to be more diverse? What can we learn from you? What can we teach you? Alongside that, I recognised through our webinar that actually small charities are at a bit of a disadvantage in terms of perhaps not having a HR representative and being quite stretched. So I've since set up a small um, EDI networking group that we're going to meet quarterly. We're looking at booking our first meeting in. So if anyone listening works for a small charity and perhaps you don't have a dedicated HR person or they're just really busy, feel free to um, get in touch with me. Again, LinkedIn's probably the easiest and, and happy to add you into the, the mailing group for that. Um, and then we're working with HR teams to look at their portals that they use. So that is quite a difficult task. And I will acknowledge this. Obviously, as a recruiter, we have a reputation as a general industry. And actually, when we say to HR teams, oh, your portals are not very um, inclusive, it's not always going to fall on. Oh, great. Thanks for that lovely suggestion. Let's reinvest in a huge new portal. Um, so we're working with them on kind of advising that um, streamlining some portals are, I, in my opinion, quite frankly, exploitative in terms of particularly in the current market where they take four hours to use. And if you've got any kind of dyslexia or um, dyspraxia or not an, an access financial access to a laptop or computer then you're going to knock out a huge portion of your market and then every role we now take a brief on our question one of our questions is what is your organization doing around this do you have working groups do you have policies so at any point we interact with a client we are trying to remind them this is for at the forefront of our agenda and it should be at the forefront of yours and we did that on the advice of someone who said to me um what would be really great is that if as an agency i didn't have to prompt you to say is their workforce diverse and inclusive because it makes me feel uncomfortable and so now we make sure we already have that information and that we reveal that to everyone regardless of background that that we've we've asked that question and what their answers are 
we're looking at the internal EDI networks encouraging charities to promote that to non-minority people as well so that they um, they get that and, and as recruiters I think we also need to challenge our own unconscious bias and stereotypes so setting it up our own policies as recruitment agencies to make it harder to discriminate um, and being genu genuinely committed I think it's really and looking at the profile in terms of leaders or owners of recruitment agencies across our sector it is it is a big big old uh, big old white white town where um, there's not much diversity there in terms of I guess even gender to some extent so I think we have to hold ourselves accountable and making sure we're building diverse workforces around us um, you know I say that as a owner of a business who my team is all is all female that's not through proactive choice or discrimination it's just they are um we're, we're diverse in terms of our education our class and our religious and and ethnic background but not diverse gender gender wise and i need to be aware of that but yes i think it's genuine commitment and and this doesn't happen overnight and i think the most difficult thing with and i'll come on to your challenges part but leadership is predominantly white predominantly male and in the sector and in in the recruitment agencies that support this sector and actually when you are a majority person you don't deal with the impact of being a minority person on your daily life so it's never impacted or it's rarely impact, impacted the senior leadership teams in charities it's rarely impacted the senior leadership teams in recruitment agencies and as such there's not as much of a pressing need to deal with inequality because it doesn't directly impact you. It doesn't damage your earnings. It doesn't damage your potential. And so you need to be aware of that privilege and you need to genuinely commit to understanding minority background people and their pressures and then doing everything you can in your policies to support them as much as possible. kind of challenge I guess is and, and the one that comes up regularly is pushback from SLT or even sometimes from HR so um, you have some people that are really passionate uh, you know perhaps even your ED&I group who are trying to steer conversations and steer policies and actually they're getting to a certain level and then they're pushing against people that aren't willing to change and that could be because of apathy it could be because of stand, like the process is lengthy but um, but I think that is the biggest challenge and in terms of advice for how to overcome that I mean it's really tough but I think it's you have to show the tangible and positive outcomes of being more diverse so um you know looking at and we mentioned this on our inclusive cultures webinar but looking at the impacts that not being a diverse workforce has so you know uh, fundraising from the muslim community during ramadan is a really great example of charities missing out on that for many years and only really trying to tap in, into it and probably build quite inauthentic relationships with that community you know because they've suddenly realized um and there's there's like a McKinsey support, uh, report it's it's a little bit old but it's the the organizations that are more ethnically and more gender diverse outperform their competitors that are less diverse yeah like year on year so but I think that's it's showing the tangible outcomes and I think that's how you get your SLT and your HR teams probably to buy in 
that you're right in terms of location geographically obviously if you have a predominantly white area I guess it's harder to recruit people from an ethnic diverse background um that's probably the most common one that that would come up based on geographic location I think it's just I mean from what I said about London being you can be less centric about where your fundraisers are actually rural charities or regional charities I don't know if rural is the right word but regional charities can can do the same thing you know if you're based in I don't know Staffordshire and you've got you know you've got like a, a, a population that's predominantly white or Northern Ireland where, or Scotland where you're, you're predominantly white if you can then attract fundraisers regionally actually you'll you'll be able to open your diversity pool and the pool of candidates you go to so that that I think is is the, the challenge of that but to be completely frank with you it's mainly pushback from senior leadership teams and HR teams that's the challenge. I, I agree with a lot of the points that you've made Ashby point that you made around EDI and the impact on the organization is really important. I'm a trust fundraiser and I've been working in the sector for about seven years now and in the last couple of months particularly although in the last 12 months as well a lot of applications have said how what what is a percentage of your trustee board or your senior leadership that have lived experience of the the issues that you are trying to solve as an organization and we need to be really honest and upfront if we do not answer those questions that will have a detrimental impact on the amount of fundraising that we can do in the future so in terms of putting a business case of support together for why EDI is so important it's quite clear that we are going to miss out on funds from very large reputable funders like the National Lottery Community Fund like BBC Children Need if we don't take action I went to the trust conference in February and this was face to face and the CEO a foundation, her name is Fawzia Irfan and she spoke about this issue very passionately. She's done a lot of work in the UK as well in the US and she talked about morality and the business case and she said working in the, the area of EDI for so many years, she often puts the, the, the morality argument to one side because morality is subjective at the end of the day. And she focuses on what is a business case for support for having a more equal, diverse and inclusive workplace. Yes, it's about fundraising, but it's also about understanding the people that you are trying to serve. And if your trustee board or your senior leadership board is from a particular background, they may not have a nuanced understanding of some of the issues that they are trying to solve. So by having a more equal, diverse and inclusive culture, it allows you to have different voices around the room to ensure that you're making the best decisions for your beneficiaries because that's why we we exist as a sector as well and at action for children where i work what we've done in the last six months is have solidarity hours so one hour every week on a friday afternoon all the organization is invited and we talk about different issues in relation to edi and it's a conversation starter it allows everyone to be open and upfront and honest in a safe environment to talk about issues that are very challenging and difficult to talk about. And I think all can organizations need to be doing a better job at providing that platform to give voice to these issues more than they are currently. But I've been really encouraged in the last 12 months that organizations within the sector are taking it seriously at the same time. We have a long way to go, but organizations like Charity So White have held up a mirror to our sector and it doesn't make positive reading, unfortunately. And 
you know, a lot of the people involved in Charity So White put together and curated the BAME conference. It's important that this conversation keeps going on. But what I'm also conscious of is we just don't want to keep having conversation. Action needs to be taken and senior leadership needs to be held accountable at the same time. Conversations are great, but if there's no action to back it up, then in six months time, we don't want to be in the same position. So, you know, we, we have come a long way. There's been a lot of positive that we can take out of the last six months, but we must also understand that there's a long way to go as well. Yeah, completely. And it's interesting what you said about leaving morality to one side, because I think, um, I think, yeah, that was, that's why I think it's so important to realise the impact that a lack of diversity across all backgrounds has on your fundraising stream, you know, like if, and this is not a protected characteristic, but if you, even if we break it down as minutely as saying, oh, well, actually, the population of male fundraisers to female fundraisers or you know male fundraisers may maybe from like nerdy computer gamey backgrounds you know if we had more of those we might have realized that gaming was a huge potential years ago and we wouldn't just be finding out about twitch you know and i think it's it's showing your leadership here is the impact financially we are worse off if we don't and it's great that great that more trusts and foundations are asking those questions i'm a trustee and we just have to do a survey on our backgrounds and um you know particularly for like youth youth charities or charities that have beneficiaries who are predominantly um from BAME backgrounds or from non-majority backgrounds your trustee board needs to be more diverse. Your fundraising team needs to be more diverse. Your senior leadership team needs to be more diverse. It, you can't, because it comes down to that point, doesn't it? Where it's like patronizing, like white hero riding in on their horses to tell you exactly how to feel about something or how they're going to help like impoverished communities. We're done with that now. Like let's, let's move past that. And it, it's a long it is a long process you can't just and I think the thing like there's a couple of like fundraising director roles that have gone up recently where it's been like we encourage people from a minority ethnic background and it's like yeah great where do you think these fundraising directors are going to be because you've not given them time to thrive it takes 10 years maybe longer to map that career journey you can't just expect people that have only just been allowed to enter or who haven't been allowed to progress to suddenly be ready to step up you know it's, it's a long-term commitment for all of us great points made there what I wanted to do now is if you could summarize the top tips that you have for organizations mm -hmm. or for individuals particularly during COVID-19 and our learnings from it what would your top tips be to make sure people feel reassured also very positive about the future yeah okay so <laughs> because we don't know what that holds but um look let's 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 be pragmatic firstly if you are thinking about looking for a job and you're in a stable organization that hasn't announced um any redundancy plans that's income is on track and you've been there for more than two years to be completely frank with you right now is possibly not the best time to be looking 
um, legally you're given more protection at two years within an organization so it's worth just just staying unless you know the organization you're looking at moving to is really financially stable so do your due diligence look at the annual reports utilize any recruitment agencies you know and if the agency can't answer that then stop working with them because they're not doing the right thing for you or the market generally um, if in terms of uh, job search, if you are you are looking or you're at I don't know at risk of redundancy, I think make sure you know what you raise for your organisation. I sat on a panel of interviews the other day and people weren't actually aware of how much they were meant to be raising per year or how much they had raised against that figures 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 is always key for fundraisers so just make sure you've you've got that and if your career achievements if you're outside of trusts <laughs> because trust fundraisers are having amazing six months they've never had it so good <laughs> you know if you're outside of that and you know your fundraising's been impacted just record what happened in the 12 months prior to COVID in your role. So, you know, start putting those on, on your CVs. The market's getting better and it's it's competitive right now, but using yourself and a good agency, like you should be supported. So don't be disheartened when you get those. It's just a really competitive market. And in terms of organisations, I think remember, as I said earlier, remember that if you treat your staff bad now they might not leave you or if you take advantage of candidates now in terms of you must give us an answer yes by this day this in three hours or you have to do this portal or whatever actually they will do it at the moment because people are frantic for jobs but they're not going to do it in a year's time and they're going to leave with a really bad reputation of your organization you know there are loads of candidates that have applied for roles i mean some organizations are getting like 200 applications for staff if you're not even going back to them with like a sorry you've not been successful at mass mail merge email they're not going to apply to you in the future and it's a re and then you'll you'll struggle in two years time to recruit good people um so yes so that's that's my advice to organizations look after your staff build that loyalty now now is the time to do that and look after the people that are applying for roles i know you're busy but make that time um and hiring managers so anyone that's looking at i guess recruiting currently give your candidates feedback and please please give them tangible feedback saying oh someone was slightly stronger than you isn't that useful what question were they stronger on you know what did they what did they get wrong because these people a lot of the time you might be the third interview that they've got a no from and actually it's not fair to them to keep pushing them through the same rigmarole without helping so I know it's hard to give negative feedback, but I'd say, you know, at least pick out a question that they did weaker on, give them that advice. Um, and yeah, be really careful of your employer branding on the marketplace. And to organizations and hiring managers, I think, look, make sure you're a fay with your, um, your EDI policies, because that's a question more and more people are comfortable asking now. And if you don't have a good answer at interview, it's gonna reflect very poorly. So that would be my kind of top tips for, for people that are looking or trying to keep their staff right now. Brilliant. Thank you, Ashby. Some really important tips and practical too, which is important. I wanted to end by understanding what conversations you're having internally at AJR and the forward planning that you're doing. As a key recruiter within the sector, you're obviously supporting organisations through this difficult process. But at the same time, you're going through that process yourself. So it's not exactly if you're removed from the whole COVID-19 situation. 
So how are you preparing yourself and how are you starting to develop a strategy in terms of moving towards a, a new normal or if there is a second spike? Yeah. So yeah, that's it's actually very kind of you to acknowledge that we're also in a difficult situation because I think um yeah, I think, you know, it's whenever, I mean, recruitment's been put on freeze and and also, you know, I guess I'm speaking from the supplier perspective in terms of even those event agencies, you know, that rely so much on the charity sector for for their business model. I think for us right now, we're, we're not forecasting for too far ahead. It's about survival and it's about being the best that we can be. So it's a very, it's been a really tough time. Like I know fundraising has, has seen a drop for us, you know, to be completely frank we've seen a drop between q1 and q2 of 60 percent of revenue so it's definitely uh, definitely tough however i think we are our policy is to as i said at the beginning and our vision is to do everything that we can to support the sector so we will continue finding great talent we will hit if the webinar series now is not so useful because more people are back at work right how do we pivot that and you know we're always trying to and we're small enough to always be trying to come up with new ideas of ways that we can support the sector um whether that's training or cv advice or whatever we're, we're working into it um so we're not planning too far in advance if a second spike happens we'll just batten down the hatches as we did last time you know i think take care of the people that are job searching because they're more vulnerable at the moment as well as trying to support our clients with sharing best practice and knowledge of what other clients are doing that are succeeding really well and i think we that that's our that i guess that's our our kind of focus not focusing too or not worrying too much about it i think what I would what I would hope is through all of our webinar series and through all of the other ways that we've supported that I know fundraisers are good people and I know they're relationship builders and that will come back round. So I'm not expecting that to come back round in the next month. But you know, as people go on to recruit, I hope that they remember us and that what what we've kind of tried to do during this time comes back our way. And I it works that way. So um so that's my my kind of hope for the future. I hope to lead my team to continue to deliver excellence and um, I know that all of them are so passionate about what they do and we are so committed to our organisations and to our clients that we will continue to, to work in great partnership and I, I actually hope that this brings us closer so we've definitely in the last few months been feeding into fundraising strategies more than we ever would have done before particularly with those small organizations that's something we're always here to support with so um i think we'll we'll just keep fluidity i don't like to set any plans because yes if we do go into the second waves and recruitment freezes or say individual giving programs start dropping out whereas they've maintained consistency so far we'll have to flex to support sector and we're in a position where we can do that Thanks, Ashby. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you to find out more about yourselves, but where can they get in touch? Yes. So I've touched on our webinar series. So that's on our website under blog section. There's a, a particular post about all of our webinar series. Um, you can see the previously recorded webinar series on our YouTube channel, just YouTube Ashby Jenkins, and it will come up. In terms of, cons I guess, well-being of staff and um, perhaps training or um, repurposing of staff you're bringing back from furlough and things like that, or looking at if you're making big redundancies or whatever, um, 
then I would say get in touch with me. My email address is ashby at ashbyjenkinsrecruitment.co.uk. And I'm always happy to have confidential chats. Equally, if you're looking for new roles, I can guide you on what the market's looking like or one of my team can. And I mean, we're on LinkedIn. The chances are we've probably badgered some most of the listeners at some point. I'm sure we've badgered you as well. We're very, very annoying, these recruiters. Um, so you, we're, we're easily accessible. So look us up on LinkedIn or on our website and um, we're really keen to help support in any way, even if that's a little bit of advice for you. Don't, don't worry about that. We're, we're always here to help. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. No, thank you for having me. It's, um, it's been a pleasure. It was great speaking with Ashby, who shared her insights, thoughts and experiences on a wide range of topics. Ashby mentioned that although it is a challenging time for organisations, dealing with the impact of COVID-19, and while difficult decisions have to be made, those that have supported and empowered their employees through this period will be in a much better place post-COVID-19 and beyond. We also had a very positive conversation on what steps organisations can take to genuinely improve diversity within their organisations, not merely to tick a box, but because it makes business sense, leading to better decision-making and ultimately being able to serve our beneficiaries more effectively moving forwards. Thank you for listening, and that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab, sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Aksumit for our website design, RR Yard Photography for our pro bono images, and Forrester Fools, who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now.